Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 64 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I had a great time talking to someone I look up to very much, and that's Judith Hansen Lassiter. Judith has been teaching yoga since 1971. She is one of the original founders of Yoga Journal Magazine. She's the president of the California Yoga Teachers Association. She's written nine books. She has a new book out called Restore and Rebalance, Yoga for Deep Relaxation. That looks really yummy. So Judith and I just had a great time chatting today. I wanted to hear some stories from her past, you know, how she found yoga and started the magazine as well as stories from now. And one of the things I've always admired about Judith is how well and how clearly and how directly she communicates. So I got to ask her about that. And she just is always so thoughtful, never at a loss for words. She's just, I could have talked to her for hours. And you're also in for a real treat because I interviewed her daughter, Lizzie Lasseter, who is now teaching yoga and teaching with her mom online. And so I'm going to air that interview next week. So I got the perspective of being a yoga parent and I got the perspective of being a yoga daughter. (laughs) And of course, Lizzie's all grown up now. So she has a lot of really interesting things to share about growing up the daughter of a yoga teacher and about her own teaching and practice now. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes and leave an iTunes review if you feel so moved. It's so appreciated and it helps other people find the podcast. Okay, enjoy the interview. Okay, so I just want to start from the beginning. You know, after all the times I've interviewed you and met you, I've never had the chance to ask you, how did you first find yoga? I was in graduate school at the... uh... University of Texas in the government department. I had an undergraduate degree in sociology and I graduated in a short period of time and I decided to go to graduate school. And I was very interested in the acquisition of political attitudes and political socialization kinds of things. So I had been a teaching assistant for one year and didn't want to do that and wanted another job. So I was walking across the street from the university and it's a street we call the drag. It was like that was its nickname. And it's just, you know, all the bookstores and the coffee shops and that kind of thing. And I went by the Y and literally, I'm not making this up. I do make things up, but this is not one of them. I felt this magnetic force. I'd never been in there. It just pulled me in there. I mean, literally pulled me in there. And I walked up to the desk and said, hi, I'm looking for a job for the fall. Cause I had to write my thesis and I had to live, you know, I had a $70 apartment, $70 a month apartment, you know, in the old days. Uh, but I still needed to eat. So they looked at me, they all stopped working and just looked at me and said, how did you know we were looking for someone? We just got out of a meeting deciding we needed a program associate. Mm. And I don't know, that's the force was with me. So they hired me and one of my perks was they had just started a yoga program. So I got to take yoga and I did because I wanted to go do dancing again and I kind of had some arthritis. So I took my first yoga class and it was literally like someone opened a door I walked through and they closed the door and I was in a whole new world. Mm-hmm. I got up the next morning. I did what I remembered. And within 10 months, my teachers left and I took over a 200 person yoga program and I taught five days a week. And it was like, learn how to teach, jump in the swimming pool, learn how to swim. And after five or six months of that, I realized I needed to learn more. And so my husband and I 
when I got married, my husband and I both wanted to go back to school and we, I wanted to go to physical therapy school. Because I woke up one day, we were living on his parents' ranch, and I said, I want to be a physical therapist. He said, great, what do they do? I don't know. Have you ever been to one? No. Do you know anyone who's one? No. But this is what I was told in my dream. So we both went back to school, and I did PT and then a PhD in East-West psychology. And because I wanted to dig a very deep well in the world of yoga and just really know all of it. I did a PhD in East-West psychology, wrote a dissertation about the difference in the view of the mind and the self from the Eastern and Western viewpoints. And I did the physical therapy so I could have some sense of the anatomy and the, the way the body really worked and moved. And, and then he did a master's program and then went to law school. And so that's what happened. I knew that you had the physical therapy degree. Did, did you ever practice as a physical therapist or did you use that to apply to your yoga teaching? That The second. Mm-hmm. I learned so many valuable things. I am you know, licensed, although now I have an inactive li- but current license. I am licensed. I did my internships. I finished the program. Because at that time, 1973, 74, when I was in school, yoga teacher was like... Unheard of, Yeah. It was weird. You know, mainly I wanted to learn, but I also wanted to have something to fall back on because PTs make good money. Yeah, that's really smart. Things that are interesting. And I thought, well, at least I can be a physical therapist. But it was really, I know this sounds strange perhaps, but it was really planned out in some way. It was, I was following, every time I put my foot out, there was another step Hmm. leading to where I was going. It, so many things fell into, into place. So many coincidences, quote unquote, happened that brought me to California, that brought me to the Bay Area that, you know, here's one. We came a year early to establish residency, you know, t- so we could pay tuition, which was quite low in those days, uh, the California system. And we could both do what we wanted in the Bay Area. So we got here and I called up UCSF, where the physical therapy program was, and the director of the program just happened to pick up the phone and was in a chatty mood, and she told me how to get in. Oh, nice. Wow. And one of the things was that you do volunteer work in a PT department. So I wouldn't have thought of that. Right. Yeah. How would you know that? There were over 700 applicants, and they only took 40 people. So I didn't know that either. I just was blithely going along. So I looked in the phone book, the yellow pages, the phone books. You may not know what that is, but it used to be <laughs> I do. I do. Some listeners might not, though. Some might not. Yeah. But I looked in the yellow pages, you know, the original Google. And I found that I just was drawn to this one place in Oakland. So I called him up and he said, yeah, come over here. So I went over there and I worked on Friday mornings from 8 to 12. And I cleaned out the tub where we soaked people with burns and I ran back and forth and I helped and I learned a little bit. And one day there was a massive flood up in the Oakland Hills and the, he was subletting it in some way with a the hospital. They hired him as a franchiser. I don't know, but he was the boss and he called up and I was there and he said, I can't get there. Treat the patients. You know what, you know what to give them, make notes. So I did. I knew exactly, you know, this one needs lower back massage. This one needs knee exercises. This one, you know, and then he came in about 1130. He was so impressed because he hadn't lost all that money from the, I guess, partly 
and that he got on the phone immediately. He says, I'm calling Eileen. I said, who's Eileen? She, she's the director at UCSF program. Wow. Yeah. And he came up and said, you have to take this woman. She handled everything so well, blah, blah, blah. Wow. It's, yeah. So I mean, what I mean, it was like everything was sort of, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I just finished this book called The Female Brain. Have you ever heard of this book? It's by... Yes, Louise Breslin. And she has the male brain. Mm-hmm. She works at UCSF, by the way. I know. I'm actually going to try to have her on the show. And there's just this one section, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't, I'll, I'll look it up and send it to you when we get off the, off the call. But there is a whole section about how women have the part of the, the part of the brain that I guess correlates with intuition in a woman's brain is significantly more developed than in a man's brain. And, you know, she talks about how we think of intuition as kind of woo woo, or just like, it's hard to really think of it as concrete, but it, it really can be. I mean, it just sounds like you, you followed your intuition for these steps and things unfolded for you, which is pretty fascinating. There's a Goethe quote, which is, maybe I'll send to you, it has to do with, and I'm going to murder this, but once you commit fully and completely, the universe changes. Mm. Felt like that. But I will tell you, there is a book called The Second Brain. And the book itself kind of reads like someone's dissertation. You know, the kind of book where they, they have a statement and then they have parens and footnotes. And it just breaks up the reading. But the concept is not at all boring. The concept is that we have in our thorax and abdomen receptor sites, neurological receptor sites that respond to the exact neurotransmitters as the brain. So it turns out when we say, I knew in my gut that was the right thing, we did. Mm, that's so cool. On the brilliance of the abdomen. Wow. And I call, I call it the belly brain. The belly brain is never wrong. The head brain is really fast and it has delusions of grandeur. But what the brain in your head is doing is receiving massive information from your gut all the time about immunity, fertility, digestion, assimilation, el elimination, all kinds of hormones and enzymes. And usually we, we're not aware of it until it breaks through with pain or dysfunction. But not only is intuition not woo-woo, the human race would not be here mm. if we didn't have intuition. Intuition is actually biologic. Mm. It is built into the system. And what's so sad to me is that our culture not only poo-poos intuition, they actively teach you not to trust it. And you and I were discussing earlier schools, and I was talking about a program that my children's private school had in elementary years on emotional intelligence and what they actually started teaching the children from a young age was to listen to your belly and that's what they taught them about stranger safety they oh, didn't that's so smart about what's a stranger i mean it's not always a stranger anyway it's your uncle or whatever but what they talked about slowly age appropriately was you know that funny feeling you get in your stomach and they all talked about that yes okay if somebody asks you to do something even if they tell you not to tell, that gives you that feeling. Let's brainstorm right now who you're going to tell who will protect you. Mm, that's really smart. Brother, your mom. And they, they went totally on feeling it. I want to tell you this story because it has to do with the yoga journal, by the way, if you don't mind. <laughs> of course not. I, I, t I totally want to hear about early yoga journal. 
I was at the Yoga Journal Conference years and years ago in New York, and I got on an elevator, and there was a man dressed all in black with a black hat on too. And he never looked at me. He never threatened me. He never said anything to me, but the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Hmm. And I got off as soon as I could. And this is the part that I like about myself because it wouldn't have always been like this. I, I waited a while. Then I went down to the lobby and I went up to the desk and I said, there was a man on the elevator. And when, and when I was on the elevator with him, I said, he didn't threaten me, et cetera. But I felt very, very, very uneasy. And they, they perked right up and they said, what did he look like? And I told them, they said, Look, we're looking for that man. He's been breaking into rooms. Hmm. Intuition is self-preservation because intuition is a way of knowing that your animal self-knowing. Yep, absolutely. There's a wonderful book you might like if you're interested in that, which is by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's called... Hmm. Is it Blink? Is it, Blink. is it? Yeah, I've read that one. It's a great one. Greek Boy Statues. In the first chapter, it's actually the Getty Museum in L.A. bought we're going to buy this very, very expensive, rare, 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 this 10 in the world Greek statue. And they did every kind of scientific test. And they asked all these experts and they said, it's, yes, it's real. It's real. It's real. And then they asked the old guy, you know, from, you know, comes in there kind of all bent over who's been in this field for 60 years. And he said, no, it's a fake. Why do you say that? He said, it feels wrong. Hmm. And it turns out they bought it for millions. And guess what? It was a fake. I'm not saying, and please don't hear, that intuition is better than rationality or the patina of rationality we have as human beings. Thinking is a good thing. I have four college degrees. I like thinking. Mm -hmm. I also want intuition to come in, be equally part of it, as you say, and Louise Bresendine writes about the female brain and, and how it works. And I talk to my yoga teachers about when I do training, sometimes we do exercises and intuition because when you teach yoga, you need every kind of knowing that you can get. You see someone in a pose, I say, put them in the pose. And I teach in this mantra, which I make them say over and over again, like they're in the second grade, which is trust yourself first. Hmm. Trust that intuition because I tell them, I have learned that I'm going to make mistakes in life. But I've also learned that I'm much happier living with the consequences of a mistake I made for my intuition than a mistake I made for my brain, which overruled my feeling sense. Right. Or a mistake that you made because you list, you didn't, you actively didn't listen to your intuition. You yes. listened to like a should or a, yes. yeah, that's the oh, worst that's feeling. I think that or whatever is my mother or my grandmother in my brain. But I, but I say to them, trust yourself first. And then I pause and I say, Notice I didn't say trust yourself only, but trust yourself first. As a teacher, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. I am so wanting to know, you know, I realize like I worked at Yoga Journal for so long. We, of course, worked together. I knew about your role in, in helping to start Yoga Journal, but I never asked you, how did it come about and what was it like for you? And then what was it like for you to see it grow over the years? I'm sure it was mixed, but <laughs> mixed. what is not mixed? Marriage, children, work, everything's mixed. Everything's mixed. Absolutely. Everything's on the spectrum. Yeah. We formed in 1973 
a group of yoga teachers. At that point, I pretty much knew every yoga teacher, at least by name in the Bay Area. There were not that many of us. So we formed this group called the California Yoga Teachers Association, which was the first non-sectarian group of yoga teachers. It wasn't Swami Satchidananda's ashram and his teachers or Swami Vishnu or Yogi Bhajan or any anything. It was an independent group of yoga teachers. I believe it was the first one in the United States. I'm pretty positive about that. And we had a newsletter called The Word. And we would advertise workshops for each other and there'd be little articles or we'd have maybe a chiropractor would have a little anatomy lesson or we, it was, you know, kind of, printed in a very primitive way and we mailed it out you know to our members and we had telephone numbers of each other and where classes were and that kind of thing so we were meeting and right about that time I think in 1974 there weren't that many specialty magazines Mm -hmm. I mean there were the big magazines and then there were gun books maybe crime books you know, magazines and maybe popular mechanics. And there was like, there were like very traditional women's magazines, like Ladies Home Journal. Yeah. yeah. I'm talking about, you know, kind of very specific, not so broad as, as, you know, Ladies Home Journal kind of thing. So at our meeting one day, someone brought up this idea, the Runner's World came out. Oh. And that was especially a magazine that kind of broke the mold. And it started in the Bay Area. Gosh, I didn't know that. It's still going on. I know it. And so, so one of our board members said, why don't we do a yoga magazine and come to, you know, so it was actually my husband, my ex-husband, Ike Lasseter. And we said, come to our house on Sunday or Saturday or something. If you want to work on this and five people showed up and we decided to do a yoga magazine and sort of the offices were in San Francisco. Wow. And and Janice Paulson lived in this big house of people that were doing sort of all kinds of alternative things. And no one told us we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had this newfangled thing called a MasterCard that Janice had, and it had a $500 limit. So we started with that. We didn't have any research. We didn't have any experience. I had written for my high school newspaper, uh, you know, newspaper, but I didn't have any other experience. So I took on the sort of getting ads and, distribution and that's amazing doing it and then it kind of grew and at one point i ike and i were going up to marin because we found this distributor the only distributor that we could find in the bay area was in marin and they also distributed gay porn i remember this because and the yoga journal and i remember this hysterical fact because we went up there one time and Ike was a Southern gentleman. We grew up in the South. It was a different era. He said, you're not coming in. <laughs> he was trying, you know, because that was really wild, you know, yeah. to average people like we were. Anyway, it was, God bless them, you know. And it's a funny story, but they were our distributors for a while. And then in 1984, we had an Iyengar convention, first Iyengar convention, first big yoga convention in on Market Street in San Francisco. The Iyengar Association had it. And we were we could we were at the point where we couldn't uh, pay the printers, and when you can't pay your printers, you're out of business. Right, right, right. So there was a man who said he was going to ask, you know, give the big ask in front of everybody, all six or seven hundred people, and at the last minute he freaked out. Hmm. I do it. So he pushed me out on the stage, and I went out there, and basically I said, 
you're in this room very likely because you saw an advertisement in Yoga Journal. Yoga Journal has helped, you know, create the glue of, of our yoga community throughout the Bay Area, California, and the United States now. And the Yoga Journal's in trouble, and we need your help. And we pass the hat, literally. Wow. Like $5,000. People put $100 bills in there. And that got us over that jump. And on and on it, it grew. And then we began to pay the writers, and we actually paid people. And one of the wonderful things that I miss about Yoga Journal, I understand it had to make the leap to super professional and compete with a lot of other media, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I miss is this sort of mom and pop yoga studio advertisements. And it wasn't so slick, but it was very sincere. Mm-hmm, totally. Uh, yeah. Bad. I mean, in the early days, we had Ramdas, we had Lilius, we had Deepak. And we had some great people on the cover. We had some articles that weren't really bad because I had every single yoga journal and uh, all you know, downstairs in my garage and numbered and put in order. And so I kind of missed that smaller, sweeter, more naive time of yoga where you we really needed each other a lot more. We needed each other for comfort and support because it was really swimming upstream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were times when you'd sit on an airplane, what do you do? I teach yoga and that would end the conversation. Hmm. Well, people would say, why do you want to sit on nails? Oh my gosh. Wow. Or vegetarian, like, don't you miss meat? I didn't even want to tell people on an airplane that I didn't eat meat because it was so, so different. And when we did anything, like if anyone opened a yoga studio, you had two jobs. Now it's just, you want to get the word out. But in then you had to educate people what yoga was and why they wanted to come to your studio. And by the way, here's where my studio is. Hmm. So it was, it was very different, and it, but it had its sweetness. Mm-hmm. And we would get together, the Sita would have a, you know, a meeting followed by a potluck or the Iyengar, you know, the Iyengar board, which I was also on, would have a meeting and then a potluck because these were the people we socialized with. These were the people who understood what we were doing and why we thought it was so important. And yeah. it's very, very different now. And it has its great pluses. I mean, I know yoga journals in China and Germany and Russia and South America and Canada and, you know, all over the place. The biggest yoga magazine in the world started on my green rug, which is downstairs under my dining room, mm-hmm. my dining table at the moment. It's amazing. But it's also, you know, there came a time, you know, you turn 18 and it's time to leave in your parents' house and go out in the world and, make your own way. And that came for yoga journal. It was a teenager, you know, it was a child and then was a teenager. And now it's, you know, a mature adult and it's, it's out there doing its good in the world in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started there in 2002, I think, and it still had that sincere quality that you're referring to. I mean, I remember it so clearly, like I wanted, I, it was such an honor to work there we just wanted to do yoga justice so much. Like we just, we were very, very earnest. And I think any kind of organizational change is going to have growing pains. So, you know, I went through a lot of, of different 
changes and like trying to find our way and all those things. And I remember exactly what you're talking about, that feeling of that we were really a part of the community at that time, I think. And I think the beauty of now is that so many people can self-publish like I am right now. You know, I mean, something like I'm doing right now, I couldn't do 10 years ago. So I feel really fortunate that that technology exists because I feel like the individual yoga teachers and people who care about yoga can actually get their voice out there in addition to like the big publications. You know, one of the things, a slight change of subject, but you stimulated this idea in me that I've been thinking about it a lot is that one of the things we have not done with American yoga, we haven't defined what a yoga teacher is. Is a yoga teacher an exercise leader? Are they a spiritual teacher, a spiritual guide? Do they have some kind of psychotherapeutic? I know that people have changes in emotions and attitudes. Are we, we're a little bit like ministers, a little bit like therapists, a little bit like coaches, Mm -hmm. a little bit like exercise physiologists, a little bit like PTs, a little bit like spiritual teachers. I mean, what in the American context is a yoga teacher? Now, in the Indian context, there was the guru, and you went and studied one-on-one with the guru when he or she decided you were ready. And he was many of those things to you. He gave you practices related to you, probably related to Ayurveda, the science of medicine from India. And it was very, very different. Mm -hmm. And now you go to this person. I mean, who is this person to you? I mean, people have related to me as their spiritual teacher and every other thing on the continuum. Hmm. You know, now we go for a yoga workout with rock music. I'm not saying it's bad. Right. I'm just saying, what is it that we as teachers, who are we? You know, like, this is why I think we should look at that question. Yeah. Because yoga teachers that, that I'm lucky enough to train and that I see around around and really respect are the ones that keep going to training. You know, they want to get better. They, they want to understand the, their profession. But there is not really a profession because if you're a lawyer, you know what you do. If you're a PT, you know what you do. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a dentist or other professions, you know what you do and you know what you don't do. Mm, yeah. There's very clear rules about that. And there's consequences for me as a physical therapist if I violate the HIPAA oath or the if I treat someone in ways that are not accepted or unorthodox or I, I steal their money or I have an affair with them. or I mean, these things have consequences in my profession. All professions have professional ethics and and so I think, but yoga teaching is the why is still in the era of the wild west. Like mm-hmm. you can put out a shingle tomorrow, never having taken yoga, call yourself a yoga teacher. And all you need to have is students. You don't need any training, any certification. The good ones, of course, never stop studying and unwant this, you know, but you don't have to have that. Nothing will happen to you. You can just call yourself a yoga teacher. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's what I say. You don't need a certificate. All you need are students. So it's the West. And I think it's an interesting, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be the Wild West, but I'd like to have the conversation on a wider scale. I wish Yoga Journal would have this conversation on a wider scale or somehow 
because we really, really don't have a yoga community. And what I mean by that is a community is a group that holds each other accountable. Hmm. They hold each other accountable and they support each other. And we don't hold anybody accountable for anything. You can behave really badly. And there's lots of examples of that. Yeah. No one stands up and says, no, you need to take a year off teaching. Come and take some time off and contemplate and, and study and, and, you know, have some help about, you know, you can look at John Friend, you can look mm-hmm. at Josiah, you can look at Ekron, you can look at, there's really no community that stands behind you and supports you and says, no, you can't run in the street and play in front of the trucks. You have to come back and self-reflect because we care about you and we want you to be your best self. And there's no, there's really no professional guidelines that have any teeth in them they're all voluntary and it's sad because yoga teachers want professional respect and professional colleagues i'd like us to to be that way to get professional fees you know some really good yoga teachers i know that teach at like small studios or other places they get paid like what a babysitter gets paid in san francisco per hour yeah yeah and but we can't have those professional perks if we don't take the time to establish what it means to be a yoga teacher and what is the profession of teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. Like I would like it to be that in order to be a yoga teacher, you need the equivalent of a college BA or BS to be a teacher of teachers. You need an MA and to be a yoga therapist. You need a PhD. My husband is right there with you. He is lately having a really hard time with, I think the thing he struggles with the most is the, becoming a teacher of teachers without having, like you said, just sort of hanging out your shingle. Maybe maybe you've done a 200 hour training and you're suddenly teaching teachers. It is, it is, yeah, it is the wild west. It really is. And like you said, there's so many nuances to the job itself. And in some ways that was, or that is, it still exists, but that is one of the things that's great about the Iyengar teaching system is that, you know, it's very clear what level the teacher is. And there's, you know, all of the examinations and things like that. But coordinating that across every all of the disciplines is one complicating factor. The ethical factor, I totally hear you. I mean, one of the things I've been talking about on the podcast, actually, one of the teachers, Alexandria Crow, and I have talked about this, she grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family. And, you know, would go to, they were sort of like her, her grandfather was a traveling preacher and would speak in tongues and all these things. And she would see people give up everything for him. And it's, it actually had the opposite effect in her, you know, it made her very suspicious of people in positions, positions of authority. And, you know, she and I had a conversation, which I feel slightly, I don't know, it's, it's sad, actually, you know, that you're often seeking something when you go to yoga, you're seeking. And even if you're not conscious of it, like, even if it's as basic as like, you're seeking a better night's sleep, you're seeking, seeking, you know, ease for your back pain, you're seeking, but, but a lot of times along with that comes, you know, the emotional transformations and the mental transformations, and it makes you really vulnerable. And you might think you're going like I did, if I may interrupt you, was to help get rid of my arthritis so I could go back to dance. And I wasn't interested in the spiritual stuff. Well, that, mm-hmm. 
you know, that changed immediately. Like you never know why you're really there. Right. So, you know, right. And like you said, if you don't know what the teachers, that there's a standard of qualifications for a teacher, you can quite easily, or like you said, that there's some accountability. Accountability. That's what we don't have. We have no accountability. Then it's hard for people to know who they can trust and who they can't trust. And you kind of, you do hear about it again and again. If you go to a bad lawyer, you go to the, you know, you go to the state bar Mm. and they investigate and they follow through and they can remove licenses or make him or him or her pay you or, yeah, you know, whatever is appropriate. I mean, I'm not trying to be punitive. It's being really, really clear about what it means to be a yoga teacher. To me, it is an incredible honor and humbling privilege and responsibility that these people come to me with an open heart. Mm-hmm. And I think the first job of a yoga teacher, which I train my teachers, is to mirror back the inherent goodness and inner wisdom in each student. So that they, to quote a line from a poem I wrote, find that which is never lost, that our job is to mirror it back Mm. so that they find their own inner goodness, their self, their wisdom, and they don't need us anymore. Mm. That they're able to see reflected in us because we've done so much work on ourselves and are so clear about what we're doing there and what we're not doing there that they can look in a still pond and see their reflection and know that they're good and whole and inherently wise. And maybe they don't know how to turn their left foot in and their right foot out. The more they grow in trusting and knowing and seeing and believing, experiencing their own goodness, the world changes. Yeah, their whole experience of life changes. I mean, I I feel like you've hit on the essence of why yoga feels so good to people, why it is different from going to a really great spinning class or a Pilates class. It's, it's that being seen for who you are and accepted and celebrated. Yeah. Buddha, you, you know, you're Buddha, everyone's Buddha, either everyone is Buddha or no one's Buddha. Hmm. And so to reflect that back, you have to find it in yourself as a teacher. Yeah. And you cannot find that if you're busy trying to seduce one of them yeah, yeah, or get them to go into business with you and help you start a studio or give you money or whatever. Your intention and motivation needs to be very clean mm. that I want nothing from you. I want you to pay me because we don't pay people in bushels of peaches anymore, <laughs> but I want you to pay a fair price and, but it's a clean relationship that, you know, I don't know if you've ever done therapy. It's none of my business, but I've done therapy. And the thing that's so great about my therapist is she's not my friend. Yeah, that's true. And she doesn't want anything from me. You know, it's the one place where there's really clear that you're not my child or my boyfriend or my husband, not at the same time, boyfriend and husband, <laughs> you know, it's not, People want something from us in a relationship that's very normal, and we want something back. And she doesn't. Hmm. And so I think that's part of what yoga teachers do. Yeah. I want to offer you this, take it, use it for your good. There's a wonderful book by, written by Robert A. Johnson. You have to put the A in there because there's also another writer called Robert Johnson. And Robert A. Johnson writes a book called Inner Gold. 
which is required reading in all the teacher trainings that I do. And inner gold, what he says, he uses this great metaphor that whenever you study deeply with someone, you come to them with a trusting heart and you offer them your inner gold. Like you give over some of your power to them so that you can open and receive the message. And you can get spiritual teachings from your piano teacher or from whatever, you know, not just yoga teacher. And then as you grow into yourself and recognize your power and your wholeness and you mature as a student, you come to the teacher and a really good teacher gives you your goal back. Mm. It wasn't theirs. They weren't building themselves up and gaining power from your goal. They were just keeping it for you until you were ready to hold it completely. Mm. And but you see all the time teachers and gurus who have, disciples and people who've surrendered their gold and the teacher lives off that power and they they have all these devotees and people around them all the time everywhere they go i mean i've seen it at yoga draw conference everywhere they go from class to class there's four or five people with them and i just think of that book and i and i smile it's like it's not your gold hmm. yeah yeah it's brilliant such a good metaphor known you to be so clear and direct in your communication. And I'm just wondering, is this something that has come always come naturally to you? Or is it something that you consciously had to cultivate in your your life? Because I feel like I'm speaking for myself here. But as a woman, it took me a very long time to learn to speak concisely and directly. Yes, (laughs) women and men use language in a different way. You should read Deborah Tannen. T-A-N-N-E-N, I think. Deborah Tannen writes a book called You Just Don't Understand, Men and Women in Conversation. Hmm. Men use, according to her, this is her thesis. I think it's interesting that men often use language to establish hierarchy. And when she would have the two men in her office, they would, they would sit face to face. And two women would come in and women use language to connect. So women would sit side by side Hmm. and she talks about it. And it really, really helped me begin to understand that I had been socialized to use language like a woman, which was very indirect. And so I'll give you an example. My children went to school, as I told you before we came on this recording, that was, you know, 20 minutes away. And so they had friends that lived further away than just San Francisco. And invariably their best friend would live, 45 minutes away. And so that these kids came from all over the Bay area to the school. So they would arrange on Friday night to go home with their friend, you know, and then you'd go pick them up the next day, that kind of thing. So I'd go pick, I had two sons and then a daughter. So I'd go pick up my sons from the birthday party and they'd get in the car. They'd invariably start reading a book. And I'd say, Oh, tell me about the party. What presents did he get? What was a cake like, you know, and my sons would look at me like, with complete confusion, like, mom, do you really care? And I couldn't answer them at first. And then I read Deborah Tannen and it was like, 
oh, I'm trying to connect. That's my payback for driving an hour and a half, 45 minutes each way. And they think I want the information, but I want the connection. Yeah. And it was so interesting. I picked my six or seven or eight-year-old daughter up from this overnight birthday party. And I'd say, well, how was it? She'd say, okay, her mom picked us up in the minivan. And first we went here and we got pizza. And then we went to her house and watched this movie. And so-and-so wore the cutest dress. Oh, I loved it, mommy. We should go to that store. And then she and just detail over, just detail, just dumping, detail. Yeah. And I was, I felt so good. And when I read Deborah Tannen, I realized, ah, she and I are using language in the same way. We're using it to connect. I don't care what the birthday cake was. I want to be part of the experience. So I explained that to my sons and I said, what about, I explained it to them. So what about this? Tell me about the party and who was there and all the details you remember for 10 minutes so I can feel part of the experience and connected to you. That was my need. I was very clear about it. And then read the book, The Rest of the Way Home. They said, okay. And it was a deal. And that's what we did. So I started learning that when my children were fairly young through reading Deborah Tan. And then I studied communication with Marshall Rosenberg. I took nine trainings with him, nonviolent communication. And he told a funny, funny story. He said a woman came to him and said, you know, I told my husband that I didn't want him to work so much because I wanted him to spend some more time with me. And, uh, you know, she said, I told my husband I didn't want him to work so much and assuming that he would understand it was because I wanted him to spend time with me. So he said, okay. And then he just started, he stopped working so much, but he started playing golf all the time. <laughs> and so I began to learn that there was a way of speaking that was compassionate to me as well as to the person to whom I was speaking that my needs were important in the relationship and that needs are a precious gift. My needs are a precious gift I give you and your needs are a precious gift you give me. And it's, and I've now written a book called what we say matters on language and it's critically important when teaching yoga and you're absolutely right. I grew up in a family where people didn't talk about things mm -hmm. and everything was swept under the rug. So I grew up with a great need for honesty. And that's probably my one, number one need in relationship. Do not lie to me. Mm -hmm. I do better with the truth. And then we can, we're on solid ground. Yeah. You don't me about, I wasn't home when you called when you were even, I mean, there's a great book. It sounds like I read a lot. I guess I do. There's a book. It's called lying. Okay. And it's written by a very well-known writer. It's the best thing he's ever written. You can, it's hmm. like, like a long essay. I'm going to look it up for you right now. My family was pretty good about talking about things. And yet I still had that sense that you described of always wanting to have very upfront, emotionally honest conversations with anyone that I would go into any kind of any, anything further than a very surface relationship I actually just want to go to the heart of things. And like you said, then when you, when you feel like you can trust them that someone that way, you, or you can trust them to tell you the truth, even like the hard truth, uh, you just know where you stand. Exactly. Well, the name, the author's name is Sam Harris. Okay. Well-known writer. And what he says in that book about lying was one of the best lessons in Satya truth from the yoga sutra 
that I that I ever heard. And he said, lying is the single most destructive thing in relationship. Mm. Because once you lose the trust, it's impossible to get it back in the same way. Yeah. And he also says that many times people lie to themselves first before they lie to the other person. They, be- they actually talk themselves into believing the lie. And then they talk to the other person. So let's take this to the yoga mat and the teacher-student relationship. If someone is doing a pose that I think could be harmful, or just I think they're missing it. I mean, there's ways of saying, I never say that's wrong. I say, that's not quite what I want you to try. Would you try this? Or could I give you a little more information about that pose? I think you might like it better. Mm-hmm. With my hands, I'd like to give you some more information. I mean, there's many ways of, of transporting information that hold with that transport respect and truth together. Mm-hmm. And also a very important word that, that many women don't know. No. Yeah. No. Would you like to bake six dozen cookies? I know it's 10 o'clock, but the woman is supposed to bake them for the school. Uh, cookie sale is sick. Would you like to bake them for us tonight? Really like that. I'm sorry. No, I'm unable to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very powerful statement. So did you, did you have to practice that or? Yeah. 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 You know, I'm so, so lucky in my teaching career and I've been so blessed. I get invited places to teach and I'm trying to teach less and go back to places where I've been and developed up, developed a clientele. And I don't really want to take on a lot of new places and start over. And so what I learned was at first what I learned to do, which was a big step for me because I was raised a a woman, a Christian and a Southerner. And, you know, you, you helped everybody all the time, but you didn't take care of yourself. So So people would say, would you like to do X? And I had a pat answer. Even if I knew I wanted to do it for a while, I would say, let me think about it for 24 hours. Even if I knew I was going to say yes, to get in the habit of of checking in with myself without Mm -hmm. procedure, then I would get, let's say, invited to come somewhere very sweetly. And I would say, no, I'm unable to do it then, you know, because of this and that and this and that. And then they would write back and say, well, I looked at your calendar online and you're free on these days. Can you come in? And that would be, uh, no, I'm going to Salzburg for my daughter's wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not on my. So I learned to just say, thank you so much for your kind invitation. I'm unable to accept. Namaste. Right. You know, to be really clear is so important. Mm-hmm. And women are not taught to be clear. I mean, I can remember driving along with my husband in the car many years ago, and I was thirsty. We were going, I don't even know where we were going. And I said, like a good woman, I said, are you thirsty? <laughs> That's Except great. him to say, yes or no, but are you thirsty? And he said, no. And I find myself getting irritated. And then I crossed my arms kind of across my chest, typical woman, looking out the window, and he said, is something wrong? And then I used the F word. I said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, but- <laughs> I say fine. It's a, in fact, I told my sons, when you, you know, as you grow up and you have girlfriends and sweethearts and wives, and if they use the word fine, it's a code word that women use. It means I'm not fine. Yeah, you're in trouble. I No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I would be irritated. Mm-hmm. For days, and then I would feel guilty about that. And then I would be too nice. 
And then a, a, something else like that would come up that I would expect him to get that a woman would have gotten and he wouldn't get it. And then I'd get irritated and then I'd withdraw and then I'd get and get resentful and then I'd feel guilty. And then I, and I thought that was what a relationship was. Yeah. And so now I would just say, you know, I'm feeling thirsty. Are you willing to stop? Now, if he had said no, then we have a different discussion. Right, right. This next turn off in 10 miles or whatever we negotiate, but we deal with what is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't hinder around anymore. What I would really like is this. It doesn't mean that I don't hear your side. Well, I really, I really like Mexican tonight. Well, you know, I had Mexican for lunch. Would you be open to going to Thai? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Maybe no, I have to have Mexican. I, I'm just dying for Mexican. Let's go get takeout from the Mexican and the Thai and come home and eat it together or whatever solution, you know, that we create together. Right. In fact, I've taught a number of seminars to yoga teachers on nonviolent communication and they really seem to like it. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that example that you used of the, are you thirsty? It reminds me a little bit of a habit that people do sometimes where they want to get off the phone and they say, okay, I'm going to let you go. Have you heard that expression? Oh yes. I've used it many times, <laughs> but I think it's funny because instead of like, you know what, I've got to run, I've got to go cook I dinner. Or, yeah. I'm going to let you go. I always think it's funny when people say that to me, it's like the ultimate impoliteness, but, but I always feel bad for them because they just really want to get off the phone and they can say that that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's okay to say that you just want to get off the phone. I always Speaking of which, <laughs> do you have to get off the phone? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm thinking we should wind up if you, yes, if you're... we should wind up. I, yeah, I do want to ask you one more question um, because I'm going to try to talk to Lizzie soon. Lizzie and I are trying to coordinate a time. She, I, my daughter got sick the last time we were supposed to talk. And I just think it's so sweet and awesome that you and Lizzie are teaching together online. I saw that. I know how dear your children are to you. And I just think you must be really proud that she's joining you in teaching. How, how did it come about for you guys to start teaching together? And how, how is it working? Mother, daughter? Mm -hmm. Well, it is a great joy to me that I would, I mean, I certainly didn't try to create that situation. And because she knows about nonviolent communication, and I do too, and because we practice yoga, in part, she can say to me, Mom, I was really irritated about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was in college once. We were taught, we usually have gotten along pretty well most of her life. And there was seventh grade was like horrible. But after that, you know, it was an annualist, horribleist seventh grade. But then we got back more related. And one time she was in college and we just weren't getting along. We weren't arguing on the phone, but it was one of those phone calls that just nothing worked. And finally she said, Mom, I'm going to hang up right now because I don't want to talk to you anymore. I love you, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I'll call you in a few days. And so she's just like, I don't like you right now. She said, mm. I love you, but I don't like you right now. I'm going to hang up and we'll talk in a few days. And I just started laughing because I thought, how many thousands of dollars of therapy have you just saved yourself, Lizzie Lassiter? Because you're, you can be honest with your mother and she hears you with her heart. Yeah. You're just a little irritated with me, right? I, but she was so good. She didn't say, Mom, I hate you. Hang yeah, on. Yeah. Mom, I, I love you, but I don't like you right now. I'm going to hang up. I'll call you in a couple of days. So 
it was beautifully mature on her part. Mm -hmm. And I was able to hear it and relate to it because I wish I had been able to say that to my mother. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we've cultivated some of these skills. And, and the other thing is that this is, you know, just luck of the draw, I guess, is we work in the same way. In other words, we were in London last year. She came home from Salzburg. I was teaching my annual London trip. And we, we had five days and we booked a place, a B&B out in the con- English countryside in the spring, very isolated. And we went out there to have a creative time. Oh, how nice. And we would get up and do our own practice. We had breakfast and then we would get together in one of our rooms and we would just brainstorm ideas of, of audios. We want to do audio visuals or platforms we want to create, whatever. And we had so much fun about, and we planned time to be creative together. But the thing that's so great is that she's calling me tomorrow at eight o'clock. Okay. She will call me tomorrow at eight o'clock and I will be on the phone and we have an agenda and we'll both be ready with our ideas, you know, and she'll say, okay, I think we should do this with our business. And I say, I really like that. I have one concern. What about this? You say, mom, that's a really good idea. So let's, and then she'll say, I have this idea, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, oh, I know a yoga teacher who does that. Do we want to talk to her and get some ideas from her? Or she'll say, no, I think we should do this on our own. You know, in other words, we really hear each other and we work in the same way. It's never like she calls me yet, or I don't have, I haven't thought about the issues we have to solve, or she's supposed to write something for the, for the new an experiential anatomy video that we did. And she's, she follows through and I follow through. So we work in the same way and that makes it really good. Plus we have worked on communication in our relationship. Mm-hmm. I have a five-year-old and she often will say to me, mommy, I want to be a writer when I grow up so I can sit in the desk next to you and we can work together. And I always say, I would love that. So I think that you are living the dream right now. I mean, that's amazing to actually make it work together. I think that's great. It's just great. And it's a testament to your, both of your practices, you know? I mean, we disagree, mm-hmm. you know, disagree, but it's really wonderful when you learn that you can disagree without being angry. Yes, absolutely. So let me leave you with this thought, if I may. Sure. I think that empathy for self and others is the key to a happy life. Mm. Because once I can see it from your point of view, everything shifts. So this is my definition of empathy. Understanding independent of agreement. So I could totally understand why you wanted to do something that I would never want to do, but I don't agree with you doing it. But I understand what needs for you. It sounds like so much fun. Like, can I just tell you a story about my daughter and me when she was a teenager? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So she comes to me. I think she's 13. And she proposes, Mom, I want to go to the rock concert. It was in the East Bay, I think, with Katie, who was a cute little blondie, too. You know, you're 13. And and stay out till 2 a.m. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Uh, so I'm thinking sex, drugs, and rock and roll, older guys, 18 year olds. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know? So I said the most important thing you can say to a teenager in a situation like that, you should write this down and memorize it. Oh, tell me more. Hmm. <laughs> and then you have time to breathe deeply and remember your highest values is connection with your daughter, 
and her safety and just listen. Oh, and she told me this group and that group, and I don't know what they were. It didn't matter. But she felt she felt heard, okay? I didn't immediately say, you're crazy, you're not going. Right. I am. You can't chain me to the bed. Yes, I gave them all, you know, off for the races. So she told me all about it, and I listened patiently, why she thought it would be fun. Because it sounds like fun when you're 13. I get it. I totally get it. And I said, it sounds like you think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, Mom, it would be so much fun. And I said, would you like to spend a few more minutes talking about this right now, Lizzie? Because I think we're unfinished with it. And she said, yeah, let's talk about it. I said, I have concerns. And I've told you this a million times. My number one job as a parent is to keep you safe. And that's when she rolls her eyes, you know. And I say, so so may I tell you what my concerns are? And let's see if we can work them out. Because really and truly, I don't care if she goes to the rock concert. I have safety concerns. Right. I said, what about your brother? He's five and a half years older. Total first child. Toes the, toes the line, safe, doesn't use drugs, blah, blah. What if your brother drove you over there? And she said, well, that would be cool because Katie thinks he's cute. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, we have to ask him. But And then the, the second thing is, like, if it's this big open park area, like if you guys want to go to the bathroom or you want to go to the refreshment stand or something, I want him to go with you because I'm a little concerned about you wandering around because I knew there would be marijuana there and stuff. right? Yeah. I just, and so I'd like him to go with you because he's quite protective and smart. And she's okay. And I said, and I have one more. Can you hear one more thing? And she said, yeah. And I said, I'd like you to be home by midnight. Because I have this theory, nothing nothing good happens after midnight. If you look at the police blotter for San Francisco, 90% of trouble is after midnight. 100% true. Okay, yep. so nothing good happens after midnight. So I'd like you to be home at midnight. And she said, okay, let me run S. Miles. And she came back. He said he would do it. And so we solved the problem. And so... My needs were met of safety and her needs for it to, you know, do a grown up thing and something exciting and a little bit of an adventure, which we need to let our daughters do. Yeah. Our sons. And so they go to the concert and she's home at 10 o'clock. And I said, what happened? She said it was too loud. Wow. If I had just, just said, no, you're not going without listening to what she wanted. I'm still the parent. I'm still putting boundaries. I'm still, you know, I'm not going to let her do something that I think is life threatening. But it was an afternoon and it was aimed at younger people and her brother was there. And so I thought it was a reasonable thing to do. And that's that's how our relationship still is. Like, tell me why. I'll say, Lizzie, OK, tell me why this is so important to you. I really want to hear with my heart. Why is this so important to you? And then she does. I said, I'll tell you why I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Can you that? Are you ready to hear that? And then we say, well, how can we work it out? And then we we work it out. And a lot of it's training. But a lot of it to me is remembering my highest value. Like as many times as I could when my children were growing up in what's the most important thing right now. I asked myself that so many times. Like when they would go, I would take them to morning nursery school, you know, when they were two and a half or whatever, so that I could do my practice or go to the dentist or something, you know, I needed to do. And they would run in and immediately start playing with their friends. And the other parents, when they brought their kids in, they would sneak out. And mm-hmm. I, would, I would go in the room they, and I'd interrupt them and I'd get down to their level and I'd look at them and I'd put my hands on their shoulders and I said, I love you, mom. And I want you to know that mommy is leaving now, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is mommy is coming back after you eat lunch. <laughs> I love you. And I'd walk out and sometimes they'd cry a little bit and I'd watch them through the 
the one way thing. And then pretty soon they were. And people said to me, how can you do that? How can you stand to do that? And I said, because I don't want my children to think that every time they turn their back, I'll disappear. Mm, yeah. And to trust me and to know the truth. I am leaving. The shot will hurt, but you won't get polio. Right. Look at the person who has polio. No, to tell them the truth. Every, but later, everybody uses drugs in this culture. Mm. Caffeine, sugar, alcohol, and other drugs. Everybody uses drugs. The question is which ones and in what context. That's, that's where the danger is. Mm. How much alcohol? You know, do you, cocaine is a terrible drug. You know, heroin, you don't like, and, and we told them, we, you know, your father and I smoked marijuana some when we were in college. I mean, we told them the truth. Yeah. And so that they would trust us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So don't tell your children you use drugs. They'll make them use drugs. I'm like, they live in the culture. They're going to be offered marijuana. They're going to be offered alcohol. They're going to be probably offered something else at some point. So. That to me is like conscious parenting. Mm-hmm. It's also respectful parenting. I mean, I think when you, and we try really hard to do this, even with our young daughter, like when you speak to them, honestly, yeah, they trust you and they feel like they're being witnessed as an important person because they are. Because you know? they are. You know, we'd be flying off to Texas for Thanksgiving and I'd, they'd be little and I'd say, you want, tucking them in and I'd say, you want me to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow? Mm-hmm. They love the car is going to come pick us up and we're going to go to the airport and we're going to check our bags at the curb, give them to the airlines to put on the plane. And then we're going to go find the gate and you can find it. And they used to let them take turns when they started reading to find the gate. Mm-hmm. It took them longer, but they would find the gate, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then we get on the plane and we're going here. We're going to stay with your grandmother and you're going to, you know, get to go swimming because it's much warmer there and blah, blah, blah. So it's really Raising children helped me be a better teacher, and being a teacher helped me be a better mom. Mm. Listen, I have so much enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. I, I'm, you know, we could start our own uh, podcast together, just like Judith's parenting advice. I would love that. <laughs> it was great. It was great to talk to you. And let me know when you have a new book coming out. Correct. I do have a new book coming out. You can now order it from Shambhala Press or on Amazon. It's called A Restore and Rebalance. It's coming out December 26, but you can pre-order it now. It's the second restorative book. It has some more advanced poses and different poses than my first one, and a couple of poses from the first one with more props than I used in my first one. But it's not a repetition. I want to make that very clear to your listeners of the first book. The first book, if I may, had restorative yoga for back pain or pregnancy or headaches. This book is divided into three kinds of poses. Poses in which the head is lower than the heart, poses in which the head and heart are on the same level, and poses in which the head is higher than the heart. And what the respective uses of those kinds of poses and effects as well. Oh, neat. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Lizzie was the, produced the photo shoot. Oh, nice. Great. up hair got the photographer did that got the costume person did everything got the model awesome yeah yeah well i can't wait to order it well yeah this week thanks again judith all right listen i want to appreciate you for all you do to make this world a better place through your podcast through your practice through your marriage through your parenting 
your days are filled with service and fatigue <laughs> and love. Oh, I appreciate and that. I can imagine that there's so many wonderful things in your life. And I'm so happy to share the planet with you. And I want you to promise me that you will take care of your sweet self. I will. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're important. <laughs> and I'll tell you what Margaret Mead said. Don't forget that you're special, just like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> but you are. Yeah. Everyone's. Thank you. Humbly, thank you for listening to my many words, and I hope that our listeners and and you gain a little bit of insight, perhaps, or sweetness from them. So much, so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> like the lotus at home in the muddy, muddy water. Namaste to you. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 64. And I'll put a link to Judith's new book and to her courses that she teaches with Lizzie on Yoga Journal. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>